The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 13 again. John chapter 13. We've been uh, studying this chapter, and we're going to move into chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 in the coming weeks and months. And the reason is, this is Jesus' last conversation that he had with his disciples only a few hours before his arrest and the night before his crucifixion. Very important words are spoken here that were so impactful on the, the apostle John that he spent a quarter of his gospel recording the words of this one conversation. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been surprised when something you imagined was different than your expectations? Sometimes it's better than your expectations. Sometimes it's a little worse than your expectations. I remember when I went to Israel for the first time, I had these expectations of all these scenes I had played out in my mind as I read the Bible. And when I got to Israel, I I quickly discovered that it was... It was like Palm Desert. It was rocks and dirt and really, really smelly belly churches. It was uh, not like I expected at all. Galilee was nice, but the rest of Israel was wow. Now, there were excellent parts of it. I I was overwhelmed by how small it was, roughly the size of, of California. You could just kind of drive from one end to the other in about a day. It was overwhelming in one sense to see that these were the places that the biblical, biblical events actually occurred. And it was underwhelming in a good way in the sense that this was just a piece of real estate that God chose. On the other side, I, I had some expectations coming into marriage that were all exceeded. I, uh, I thought I knew what it meant to be loved by, by Kim and what it, what it meant to be cared for and and yet, when I got into my marriage with my, my precious Kim, I, uh, I was overwhelmed at how much better it was than I thought. Uh, I even remember uh, when we were dating the first time, you know, this, this wonderful woman. I'm going to get in trouble, by the way, later for talking about her. I'm making no eye contact with her right now, looking right over her. We began dating, and I thought, man, she's great. She's awesome. She's pretty. She's holy. She's godly. She's nice. She's funny. She's... And then we sat in church together for the first time, and she sang, and she could sing. It just kept getting better and better and better. The expectations were exceeded, and they continue to be. Well, the disciples had spent three years with Jesus, north, south, east, west, walking around. They, uh, they basically lived together as, as a band of brothers for these three years. He was constantly teaching them, constantly discipling them, constantly informing them of, of things divine and things of wisdom that they could employ in their day-in and day-out lives. And I think the, the, the disciples had a pretty good idea that they had a clue who Jesus was. They, they knew who he was. There was very little left for them to be surprised by. I mean, what was he going to do? Heal a man, we've seen that before. Raise the dead, we've seen that before. What was he going to do? Turn water into wine, we've seen that before. Multiply fish and loaves, we've seen that before. Their expectations were, were pretty high for Jesus, but I have to say they probably got up every day and thought, what are we going to see today? Then it was relatively expected in him exercising supernatural power and uncanny wisdom. 
I have to think, though, when they came to the Last Supper in John chapter 13, that their expectations were met with a deep, deep surprise. What was about to happen at this table, they had no category for. There was no part of their understanding of the Lord that would put what was about to happen in proper perspective. We see their shock and their surprise at what happened here in this passage before us. Remember, this is that conversation taking place on Thursday night before the Friday crucifixion and just a few hours before Gethsemane. For some wise reason known only to the Holy Spirit, John is the only one that records this conversation. We find out from all four gospel writers that this conversation happened, that there were things that were discussed, that the Last Supper and the communion ordinance was employed and, and begun and implemented, but only John records all the things that were said during this time. These words are incredibly touching. They have touching interest because they include special preparatory thoughts Jesus gave to his disciples for how to live life when he's gone. He kept preparing them, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to leave you. And they would get a glimpse of that and then go right back to their selfish discussion about what the implications were for them. His clear intention in this conversation is to equip the disciples for life with him in spirit, without him in body. Verses 3 and 4 launch the solemn and tender event that's central to this chapter. Let's look back at verses 3 and 4. We looked at this last week in some detail. Jesus, knowing that God the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. This was not what the disciples were expecting. This is not something they had on their radar as they walked into the upper room to have this last supper with Jesus. Remember, they have arrived at this upper room. They're preparing to eat the Passover feast on this Thursday night, and apparently there's no servant there. Why would there be a servant there? Well, the servant was there to prepare the, the meal and to make sure that the, the meal progressed along, but most importantly, to prepare them for the meal, which meant to wash their feet. Why wash their feet? Because they had sandals, and they walked around, and the, the position that you sat or inclined the, uh, in to eat this, this meal in the ancient Near East demanded clean feet. It was a U-shaped table, probably about a foot, foot and a half off the ground with large pillows all the way around it. It was open at one end so that the people could bring the food in and serve around the U-shaped table. Well, in that U-shaped table, you'd be shifting and, and moving back and forth during the, the dinner, and your feet would constantly come in contact with someone else, sometimes even in their face. So cleaning the feet was very important. However, it was not something to be done by anyone of dignified status. Washing feet was very menial. It was only the work for servants. Apparently, there's no servant here to wash the feet of these men. And as the disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest, 
Jesus humbles himself, takes on the role of the servant himself, and washes the filthy feet of these arguing disciples. Now think about this. Any one of these men would have gladly washed the feet of the Lord. Had Jesus said, I need my feet washed, any one of them would have, they would have fought for the prominence to be able to do that for the Lord. But to wash the feet of of peers, to wash the feet of each other, no way. No way. Why? Because if they were to humble themselves and wash the feet of one another, they would ruin their argument that they were making with each other that they were greater than the other. They would ruin their own argument by doing that. Luke says uh, that, that it actually rose to the level of an argument in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, and there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. It's just shocking. As they're arguing about who's the greatest, you can uh, look down, uh, well, you can follow down rather. In verse 27, Jesus says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Obviously, the one who reclines at the table. He says, is it not the one who reclines there? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus took on the role and position of the servant. Now, make sure you understand God in flesh, Jesus Christ, did not exchange his majestic role for that of a servant. He actually revealed the majesty of his role as a servant. He revealed himself as a servant. In the context of Judas' betrayal, which is imminent, we'll see hints of that this week and fully dive into it next week. In the shadow of Judas's betrayal, this is remarkable because he does indeed wash the feet of Judas. Let's follow along. We're going to move pretty quickly. We're going to go from verse 5 all the way down through verse 17. And as we do so, I'm going to find with you four surprising insights into Jesus' undying love. Four surprising insights into Jesus' undying love. This whole chapter is full of surprises. Expectations that were exceeded. Expectations that were different than they had planned them. The first surprising insight in Jesus' dying, undying love is, is in verse 5. A surprising gesture. We talked about this last week, but let's just briefly look at it again. A surprising gesture. He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. John is very slow, very deliberate, very detailed in giving us the impression that he actually stopped the room with this, this gesture. Everyone was thinking, arguing, bantering, who's going to sit where? Who's the greatest? When Jesus conquers the Romans tomorrow, when Jesus conquers the high priest tomorrow, when Jesus is the king that he's told us that he is, who's going to sit where by the throne? And in the middle of that argument, Luke tells us, Jesus quietly gets up, takes off his outer garments, puts a towel. This towel was probably 20 feet long or so, wrapped it around and around and around like a servant, washed the disciples' feet, and would use part of the clean towel to rinse them off and to finish the the cleansing. He would go to the next one, 
pull some more towel around him and do that over and over and over 12 times. The room must have gotten deathly, deadly, still and quiet. At first, they're looking at Jesus. And I think if I use my sanctified imagination, they're probably looking at each other with the looks of what is he doing? Why? Why is he doing this? It was a surprising gesture. They were shocked by this, which leads, number two, to a surprising refusal. A surprising refusal. So he came to Simon Peter. Stop right there. You just know that drama is about to happen, right? So he came to Simon Peter. If you're reading this for the first time, you can put a footnote there and say, it's going to get interesting. He came to Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He was the one who was the vocalization of all the disciples. He was the one who was the obvious, pronounced, natural leader of this group. He came to Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, we're not told the order in which Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We don't know if Peter was first or not, but it seems that he couldn't have been first because it says he came to him as if he were saying, after someone else. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter talks to him. There seems to be silence before Peter uh, speaks because Peter erupts into the silence and, and asks the question, Lord, do you wash my feet? True to his nature, he expresses what must have been going on in the minds of all the other men, basically saying, in effect, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? You can't do this. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you don't realize now, but you will realize it hereafter. Jesus now informs Peter that there's a deeper significance to this gesture that he's going to understand later after the death, burial, and resurrection. After the ascension, he's going to understand that there's more going on here than just the removal of dirt from feet. This is going to be a metaphor instituted by God himself in the flesh, instituted by Jesus as a, as a living illustration and metaphor for cleansing, which was going to happen at the cross in just a few hours. By the way, there's an interesting clue here about obedience. I love Peter's example. There are times that we, like, like Peter, are called to obey God in areas that we just simply don't understand immediately. Most areas of obedience are like that. God says, do this, don't do that. And the thing that he tells us to do, we typically don't want to do. And the things that he tells us don't do, we typically want to do. And in the immediate exercise of our affections and desires, it's hard to figure out what. What's this about? Why is he telling me not to do this or to do this? Why should I obey? And the wisdom of following what the Lord says out of, out of love and not out of sight of what that obedience will cause in the moment is an exercise of our faith. I think sometimes we'll understand obedience later, and sometimes we won't understand why we have to obey in different categories until we're with Jesus himself. Peter says, verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. Never, no way, 
Get up, Lord. There's no way you're washing my feet. The, the kind of the implication is you sit down, I'll wash your feet. You're not going to wash my feet. Here's a surprising refusal. But it's not surprising that Peter would object to his feet being washed. What is surprising is how he flip-flops so fast when Jesus objects to his objection. Jesus answered him, listen, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, let me put that in the common vernacular. You have no part with me means you're not with me. That would be the same as saying, if you won't do this as an employee-employer relationship, if you won't do this, you're fired. Peter, either you let me do this or you have no part with me. We are finished. We're through. You can leave the room. Now, as quickly as Peter objected to uh, the Lord washing his feet, now he flips and asks for even more. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I mean, you got a lot of water there, have after it. If, if, if washing my feet means having a part with you and refusing means having no part with you, get me wet, wash me. Why his hands and his head? Because those are really the only two other parts of the body that were exposed during the normal course of life. Peter didn't understand yet the meaning of what Jesus was doing, but his love, his trust, his, his experience with the Lord was enough to teach him to respond. And Peter responded with an immediate, extreme response. I mean, sometime, maybe we'll just do a study of Peter. Everything he did was extreme. Remember when he, he recognized Jesus um, from the boat after he was fishing, after Jesus was raised from the dead? He didn't say, hey, we'll bring the boat over. What did he do? He just dove in and swam there. Unrestrained. I, I really like that about Peter. The last thing Peter wanted to happen was to have no part with Jesus. He didn't understand then what he would understand later. And he didn't have an expectation fulfilled then that he had an hour before. And what the, what the overwhelming lesson is, is that leadership is service and greatness is expressed in humility. Surprising refusal. And now we come to our Lord, a surprising interpretation. Jesus says, this means more than you think. And our, our question is, well, then what, what does it mean, Lord, if you're not just washing feet? What does this really mean? A surprising interpretation, verses 10 to 12. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. What's the Lord talking about here? Well, he tells us. Jesus intends for this act of washing the disciples' feet to serve as, as an example. An example of what? This example has two dimensions, two levels. A physical um, very understandable. You could teach this to your children example of humble service, of humility, of love, of doing what, what supports the happiness and promotes the, the, the goodness of the people around you. It's the simple act of service. And that's intended in the example. He'll tell us that in a few minutes. But there's also something else going on here. Peter would understand this later and write basically first and second Peter to explain what he learned that this was a symbol of washing of the heart, 
washing of the soul, cleansing of a person before God. Now in 1 John chapter 5.13, remember John wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. In 1 John, he talks a lot about uh, what it means to live by faith, what it means to love God, what it means that God loves us. In chapter 5, verse 13, he, he tells us he's addressing those who's believed. However, John insists that it's still necessary to confess our sin even after we're believers. You remember 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where did John get this idea? I think he got it right here in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, if you're clean, if you're walking around uh, Israel and, and you're basically clean, you've had a bath and you've walked from one place to the other, the only place that's dirty is really your feet. And so you wash your feet. And you're clean. You're completely clean, but, but, but you need to have your, your feet washed. Even though there is forgiveness and salvation, the point is, there still remains a need for dependence on Jesus and constant coming to him in confession to receive and enjoy his forgiveness. I mean, isn't it a strange thing? How many of your sins are you forgiven for when you come to faith in Christ? Answer, all of them. The past ones, yep. The present ones, yep. Even the ones that you've yet to do, yes. You're forgiven of all your sins. Yet, 1 John 1, 9 says that we need to confess our sins because he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That confession is what helps us to enjoy that it cleansing all the more and to face our judge and see a savior. That's the point that Jesus is making here. If you've been cleaned by the Lord in salvation, by faith, you are clean indeed. However, you're going to still sin. When you sin, you still need to come to the Lord confessing those sins. And as John picks up and tells us and explains to us, He'll forgive those sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Not in the sense of, well, you lost your salvation and need to be cleansed again, just in terms of the ongoing enjoyment and recognition of God's forgiveness. 1 John chapter 2, right after that, 1 John 1, 9, he said, goes on, John goes on, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the big word. Propitiation means payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Simply put, having your sins forgiven when you come to Christ in salvation does not cure you from ever sinning again, does it? We still sin. Nor does it make you beyond the need of God's daily grace in the enjoyment and, and experience of God's forgiveness. Now, this is really helpful. Again, we see Jesus equipping the disciples for his physical absence from them. Think of the grace of Jesus. He says, he sees ahead. He sees ahead to a few hours from now when Peter's going to deny the Lord three times. And he knows that they're going to experience the cleansing nature of salvation. They'll be clean before God. They'll experience that. They'll know that. But he knows also that they will sin. They will sin. 
And they'll have questions in our mind. How could I possibly be saved and do this? How could I possibly be a child of God and act this way? How can I be one who's adopted by the Lord and still think this way? What am I going to do? How do I deal with this? And in sweet kindness, Jesus gives us this illustration and says, oh, your whole body's clean. You still need your feet washed. You still need to receive that daily experience of God's once for all given forgiveness. The metaphor extends also as Jesus was telling the disciples, and you need to be the, the spokespeople and the spokesperson for this forgiveness and to tell people you cannot out God's grace. Well, the last phrase of verse 10, and it reintroduces us to Judas. You're clean, completely clean, but not all are clean, not all of you. That's Judas. He had not been made clean through a sincere faith in the Savior. He was unclean, unsaved, unregenerate, unrepentant. Verse 11 gives us the specific identification. Again, by the way, there, there's no, uh, no, no, no indication that the disciples knew that, Jesus, that, that Judas rather was the betrayer. The disciples did not know what Jesus knew at this time. Verse 11 says, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. He tells us why he said that. Judas is the one who wasn't clean because he was unregenerate. He was the one who's going to turn Jesus in in an hour or so. Jesus had and Jesus has perfect knowledge of all his people. Jesus can personally and definitively make a designation whether someone is genuinely converted or a false disciple, whether they have false profession or they're truly believers. Look down for a moment just at where we're going to be next week in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He understands who he's sending. He understands who he's receiving. He knows the ones he has chosen. Interestingly, there's no indication again that the disciples had any clue that Judas was the guy. We'll see in the next two weeks that when Jesus says there's a betrayer, what do they begin asking? Is it me? Who is it? And you see this, this, there's just so many complicated scenes happening there. This interplay between Jesus and Judas. They both know what they both know. And the disciples, the clueless disciples who are one minute arguing about who's the greatest, the next minute saying, maybe I'm the one who's going to betray you. It's a remarkable fact that Judas could exist. Just ponder this for a second. That Judas could exist with these men for three years and have them thoroughly fooled. Three years. And even the likes of Peter and John and James never suspected Judas. In the next passage that we'll study 
next week, we'll see that when Jesus announced there was a traitor, Judas was not the obvious nominee. They didn't look at the end of the table and said, Judas, that's where you're going right now as you go. Jesus has perfect knowledge of his own disciples, and that has a two-sided impact. That knowledge ought to fill a hypocrite with terror and drive him to repentance and to think, Jesus knows. He knows whether I see him as the only exclusive way to God and salvation. He knows whether I believe that he is God in the flesh, revealed in perfection, lived 33 years of an absolutely sinless, perfect life, died a a substituting death, his substitution for our sin, and proved that he was God, very God, by raising from the dead. He knows who believes that, and he knows who pays lip service to that. The sad history of the church is the history of the revelation of false disciples, false converts. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. John chapter 13, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? He actually gives a very penetrating test of whether or not you're, you have a true faith. John does, the Apostle John, in his uh, first epistle. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Then he says, the one who says I've come to know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Ought to take on the example of Jesus' moral character, which is exactly the point of the crescendo of the passage we're looking at this morning. There's another side, though. Jesus has absolute knowledge, and those who are hypocrites should be very terrified of that. But Those of us who know Christ, the fact that he knows us, that he chose us, that he's called us, that he's sealed us, that he's promised us, the pledge of the Holy Spirit, one day we will see him with eyes of reality, even though now we see him with eyes of faith. He knows our hurts. He knows our misunderstandings. He knows how much we're slandered or misunderstood or persecuted or unrecognized. Jesus knows, and guess what? He cares. Jesus has never one time from heaven looked down and say, whoops, I didn't see that. I didn't expect that. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he, he stops, he puts back on his outer garment, uh, probably two layers of it, one that was just the normal uh, robe and something that was probably to, to add warmth an overcoat kind of a, a blanket. Taking his garments, and when he got back to the table, he gets on his pillow, leans up at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done to you? 
The question is really, do you understand what I've done to you physically? I've washed your feet. And do you understand what I've done to you metaphorically by, by symbolism? The point is the disciples needed their feet washed and had to understand that their souls had been washed. All but Judas. No man or no woman can be saved from the wrath to come unless his sins are washed away by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. And that's what he's telling them. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't, I don't know if, I'm, if I qualify. What, what? You don't understand my past. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I've thought. Let me give you the, one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament, but in, in the whole Bible, about God's grace and salvation. J- just listen. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthians who were a rascal group of people. In verse, chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous people, people who live habitually and categorically in unrighteousness, won't be saved. They won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives a list. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not go to heaven. And then this verse, then this verse, listen to this. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. God saves sinners. He doesn't save those who think they're self-righteous. Such were some of you. That big list, that was us. That was us, either in action or in thought, in deed or in precept. So how can you be washed? That's the question that ought to be begged on our tongues. How can I be washed then? John tells us back in his opening preamble in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those, here it is, who believe in his name. That means believe who he is, believe what he did, and trust him alone for salvation. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that's where salvation resides. And remember, please don't miss the point. Remember that Judas is a prime and living, eternal example of those who were close to Christ, who knew about Christ, who believed all the right things about Christ, but refused to give him faith as Lord and Savior. Judas didn't submit to Jesus. He used Jesus. We found out last week. We'll see again next week. He was the treasurer and used to pilfer money out of the collection chest for his own pursuits. So Jesus interprets it and says, listen, this washing is about washing your soul. That's the interpretation. Then we get to number four, a surprising application. A surprising application. Four surprising insights into Jesus' undying love. There was a surprising gesture, a surprising refusal, a surprising interpretation, and number four, a surprising application, verses 13 through 17. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Jesus is either profoundly arrogant, 
or he's God and deserves these titles. Isaiah 45 says, no one is the Lord except Jesus. No one is the Lord, rather, except God. And if Jesus is claiming to be the Lord, he is claiming to be God. You call me teacher, you call me Lord. You're right, I am. If, verse 14, then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash. He doesn't say others' feet. I love this. Who does he say? One another's feet. Do you see the indictment there? You guys were just arguing about who's the greatest, who should sit where, who's going to be closest to me in the kingdom. And you actually ought to be the ones washing each other's feet. You ought to be serving one another. You ought to be humble with each other. One of the ways pride shows its ugly presence is in seeking roles of prominence to avoid roles of service. Learn this from the disciples. I want to say it again because this is absolutely written in my own biography. One of the ways pride shows its ugly presence is seeking roles of prominence to avoid roles of service. I don't want to do that. That would cost me something. I don't want to serve. I won't get. I, I, I don't want to do that task. I won't be recognized. Now, Jesus, their teacher, their Lord, served them with the unthinkable act he washed. He, he washed their feet. So there's every reason they should wash one another's feet. The signature of Christian maturity is demonstrated in humility. The signature of Christian maturity is demonstrated in our humility. You could even say it like this, you're never more like God than when you're humble. That's surprising. That's unexpected. How do we know that? Philippians 2 tells us, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Take this example that existed in him Peter says, Paul says rather. Verse 15, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. The application of Jesus' words are explicitly given here in verse 15. I was an example. Take the example. Do it yourself. Now, some think this is a command to do foot washing alongside communion in church services. I know the brethren movements do this, and you may have have been around a church that, that does this. If, if some church wants to wash each other's feet, that's wonderful. The problem with that is if this is all that means, we're in trouble. The example goes beyond a right. You know that even the Pope on, on uh, 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 Thursday of Easter week selects a few poor people and washes his feet in order to fill this so that everyone can see how great his humility is. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is going way beyond a simple right here. What he's saying is humility and service is to be the characteristic of your life, not an occasional act. So what is the example we find in Jesus washing the disciples' feet? He said, this is the example, do what I've done. What did he do? Let's look at that uh, more and more closely. First, we see the example of humility. It's sprayed all over this passage, the example of humility. If God's only begotten Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, humbled himself to the menial servant task of washing feet, there is nothing that we should think ourselves too good to do in the service of someone else. 
A Christian ought never to be ashamed to do anything that Jesus did. This encourages us to develop an ever-awareness of our own pride. You know, it is a symbolic act. It's not a rite. Before, um, before we moved from California to um, Kansas, there was a girl in our, our ministry who um, had a great affection for Kim and uh, had some appreciation for the ministry that we had, we had done in her life. And she said, I want to come over um, and see you guys before I leave. And so we said, sure, and she came over. And she came over and she says, I want you to go and sit down in, in, your, in your den there. We did. And she came out with a, with a basin of warm water and soap and a rag. And she washed our feet just a few months ago. Now, the point of me telling you that is not to talk about her and whether you should do that or not. The point of me telling you that is to tell you how wicked my heart was when she was doing it. I was embarrassed. This is wrong. Don't do this. Come on. Don't don't do that. Sometimes we need to be willing to be served as an exercise of our pride being crucified as much as serving. And if you appreciate your pastor, he takes a shower every day, his feet are fine. Peter would later say, by the way, clothe yourself with humility in 1 Peter 5, 5. Why? For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This clothing yourself with humility that Peter said was obviously a reference back to the Lord's Supper when he had his feet washed. A second example is love. That pervades this whole chapter. Jesus loved his own. Listen, people will listen to our humility and love long before they comprehend our beliefs and our doctrine. Humility and, and love go hand in glove. Jesus would have us to love others in a such a way that we would delight to do anything to secure their happiness, even when it costs us, and even when it's a self-sacrificing denial of our own comforts. I think we ought to be on a daily search to discover how can we personify Jesus' servant heart service example, and do what he says. We should follow his example. How can we serve by making someone's life better than our own? Paul says to, to make their interests higher priority than even your own interests. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. What is he saying there? That's the reversal. Listen, the slave-master relationship is entirely washed away by humble service, no matter the position. And then the, this whole section climaxes into verse 17, which is really the most important point if you know these things, you are blessed if what? If you do them. Here Jesus identifies, I think, 
a challenge for us here at Mission Road Bible Church, a challenge for every church that has orthodox views and believes in the authority of Scripture and owns the, the reality of the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. We believe that it's, well, let's say it this way. It's easier to be right than to serve. Isn't it? It's easier to read a good book on doctrine than to go wash someone's feet or help someone move or you fill in the blank. Here we find the enduring lesson that faith is useless if it's not accompanied by practice. J.C. Ryle says it so carefully, so, so, so clearly. He says, nothing is more common than to hear people say of doctrine or duty, we know it, we know it, while they still sit in unbelief and disobedience. They actually seem to flatter themselves that, that there's something credible and redeeming in knowledge even when it bears no fruit in heart or character or life. Yet the truth is precisely the other way. To know what we ought to be, believe, and do, and yet to be unaffected by our knowledge only adds to the guilt in the sight of God, end quote. In other words, it's not enough to know we're right and be right in our doctrine if that, that doctrinal conviction doesn't move us to humble service, sacrificial service, painful, self-denying service. Alfred Garvey wrote this, what is the use of being sound on the atonement if the atonement doesn't make you sound? He's right. He's saying you can, you can be as right as you, as you want to be. You can cross every doctrinal... Um, and cross every doctrinal eye and be right, right, right. But if that doesn't make you serve, 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 your religion, according to James chapter 2, is worthless. So what's the, what's the response? Follow Jesus' example. James even tells us, be doers of the word, not merely hearers who do what? Who lie to themselves, delude themselves, trick themselves into thinking, here it is, if I appreciate truth, I've somehow applied truth. If I've appreciated truth, well, well then I'm, I'm practicing truth. Let me tell you, I am such a, I'm an amazing appreciator of truth. I can hear a sermon and appreciate it, read a book and appreciate it, um, find a website, read a blog and appreciate it. Appreciate, appreciate, appreciate is very different than do, do, serve, serve. Way different. And why don't we do that? Because we're selfish and prideful and are not looking into the example of our Lord who said, this is what I am, be this. So let me tie it up for us, can I? You're going to be confronted this week, I guarantee you, you'll be confronted this week with an opportunity. And the opportunity is to do something that's, that you don't want to do, that's menial, that seems like, ah, that's for somebody else. Don't miss the fact that that's the Lord's pitch. Hit it. Don't take. Make sure you see those as opportunities to be like Jesus, who gave us an example and said, wash others' feet. That's a metaphor. You don't have to go find people and tell them to remove their socks. It's find them and see what they need to have done and do it in the name of Christ for no credit, no glory. Let me give you a little, little test. Find some way you can serve someone anonymously. And see if that brings you joy or if it bugs you. 
You know what happens when you serve someone anonymously? The Lord gets the glory. You know what happens when, when you do something uh, and they know about it? You can pat yourself on the back. Do it and then evaluate your own heart. Do something anonymous. Serve someone anonymously and see, see what that does in your heart. Be a good test. Beware of the pitfall of being right in doctrine without being righteous in living. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful we have a church that's right in doctrine and that serves. But let's follow his example and serve and excel still more.